Good morning. Can you hear me back there in the back row? Good, okay. So good morning. Welcome to the first 11th hour lecture of the week. I am Jen Adrian, and I'm lucky enough to have this job of moderating the 11th hour lectures. Uh, I just completed the first of a two-year MFA at the Writers' Workshop here at the University of Iowa. Please feel free to thank you. Please feel free to stop and ask me any festival-related questions that you might have. If you see me around, and if I don't have an answer, I can help you figure out who does. Two points of business. First, please silence your cell phones if you have not had a chance to do so already. Uh, and second, I found last week, the first week of the festival, that some people had questions about the MFA process. And so this week, I'll be making myself available after this 11th hour lecture on Thursday, and we'll have an informal Q&A. Certainly, uh, I saw at least one of my classmates walk in. Um, anyone is welcome if you already have an MFA and advice to give people who are interested. We'll just have an informal conversation about the MFA process. Um, so that will be Thursday after this 11th hour lecture. But now for today's lecture. In preparing for this introduction, I became curious about other writers who kept a journal, or as they used to say, a diary. Among the famous are Sylvia Plath, Anise Min, Oscar Wilde, Henry David Thoreau, Ralph Waldo Emerson, and many, many others. Virginia Woolf said of keeping her diary that the habit of writing for one's own eye only is good practice. It loosens the ligaments. Never mind the misses and stumbles, the rapid haphazard gallop at which it swings along, sometimes indeed jerking almost intolerably over the cobbles. If I stopped and took thought, it would never be written at all. And the advantage of the method is that it sweeps up accidentally several stray matters which I should exclude if I hesitated, but which are the diamonds of the dust heap. This quote seems especially pertinent to today's lecture, offered by Sarah Safian, titled, Please Just Don't Call It Journaling, Writing for Self Versus Writing for Others. Sarah will review the benefits and processes of writing for oneself, from generating material to mining the stones. Sarah has a degree from Brown, an MFA from Columbia, and an MSW from NYU. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, Smithsonian, and Yoga Journal, among many, many others. She is the author of Ithaca, a daughter's memoir of being found. Sarah has taught at both the New School and NYU, and presently teaches memoir at Sarah Lawrence. She is also a therapist and writing coach. This is her eighth year teaching at this festival. Please join me in welcoming her now. Thanks so much, Jen, and I love that Virginia Woolf quote. I'm definitely going to look that up and use that. Um, and it is very apt uh, in introducing this talk, which is, uh, as the title explains, writing for self versus for others, um, and the similarities and very important distinctions between those two things. Um, just starting off with the words of David Carr, 
the late New York Times columnist and the author of the memoir, The Night of the Gun, personal narrative is not simply opening up a vein and letting the blood flow toward anyone willing to stare. Uh, less graphically, but uh, no more gently, um, Neil Genslinger, in his 2011 New York Times essay, The Problem with Memoirs, advises us to avoid the, quote, if it happened to me, it must be interesting fallacy. That is, profound and meaningful to you does not automatically mean profound and meaningful to others. And it's not just a matter of content. I really bridle against that myth that the only people with shocking or traumatic or bizarre life experiences have the right to write memoir. I don't think that's true. But it's the way that that content is conveyed that makes other people care. Um, I'm going to parse a sort of three-part, very brief writing exercise this lecture. So this is part one, and those in my class this week will already be familiar with this. And I'm only going to give you a minute or two, because the whole point is not to really overthink. Um, I'd like you to list, please, five important things about yourself. Important slash interesting. It would be no more than a sentence. It might be a phrase. It might be a single word. Uh, for instance, a label or a role, mother, accountant, brother. Um, it could be a quality of your personality or your outlook on the world. It could be an experience you had that divided your life into a distinct before and after. Um, it could be a place. It may not be where you live or where you come from, but another place that's meaningful to you. It could be another person. It could be something unusual, surprising, shocking, unsavory, the thing you're the most embarrassed or ashamed of. You don't have to share these, so it's just for you. Um, so as I say, just a single word or a phrase or at the very most a sentence for each, five things not prioritized. And if we did this two weeks from now, you may come up with five completely different things. So the idea is what rises to the surface as important about you now? So I'll give you about a minute. Go ahead. Okay, five things. We will use these later in two different ways. Uh, one in the way of writing for oneself therapeutically and one in the way of writing for others in a more craft sense. So hold on to those lists for a little bit. Thank you for participating and we'll share later. Um, I've always been a tough love memoir teacher and writing coach. Um, anyone who has worked with me is familiar with workshop titles like Get Over Yourself, uh, mantras such as, who cares, and why are you telling me this, and, and so what, 
um, and metaphorical advice along the lines of, don't give me the whole lump of clay, give me the sculpture that you make from it. As a fellow human being, I may respond with sympathy or shock and awe or amusement to your life experiences, but as your reader, not so much unless you do something with the material. Um, just to give you a few other metaphors along the lines of the lump of clay, Sarah Manguzo, who's the author of several memoirs, The Two Kinds of Decay, The Guardians, and most recently, Ongoingness, says that to write a memoir is to prune the enormous hedge of the whole narrative. And Michelangelo famously said, every block of stone has a statue inside it, and it is the task of the sculptor to discover it. So pick your metaphor, whether we're sculpting from the lump of clay or trimming the unruly hedge into a topiary or chiseling the statue from the block of marble. There's a crucial distinction between our entire lives and the narrower story or stories that we create from those experiences. And that's the divide that's the point of this lecture, that your journal which is a valuable resource both for personal exploration, just for you, and for storytelling for others, your journal is for you. Um, relatedly, writing for ourselves and writing for others, while both important, are different endeavors. And since becoming a therapist, in addition to being a memoir teacher and a memoirist myself, so I get over myself all the time, or at least I try, it's an intention, um, I've been fascinated to explore the concept of journal writing and its usefulness both creatively as the raw material that we draw from to craft our stories and personally as a means of achieving deeper, clearer self-reflection, processing, and discovery. Bless you. So I've come up with a hybrid technique that I call therapeutic writing where the focus is not on writing for others but within and where the get over yourself and who cares mantras of the workshop environment don't apply. I wouldn't be a very kind or effective therapist if I said get over yourself to my clients. Um, not that I don't sometimes feel tempted. Um, I use the same memoir prompts in therapy as I do in my craft workshops, actually. They translate quite seamlessly. Um, in both cases, I offer them as frames and participants or therapy clients determine what content to examine through those frames. Writing about the same experience twice, for example, first in the past tense and then in the present tense, that's my class's assignment for today, uh, to compare the distance of reflection that the past tense affords to the immediacy of the moment that occurs when you write in the present tense. Um, writing from your own point of view about a situation, and then writing from someone else's point of view, but also in the first person, trying to get into that person's head and heart in order to achieve a more 360-degree view of the experience. Writing a letter to yourself at a crucial point in your life, or writing a letter to someone else to admit or to express what you're unable to in real life. So those are some examples of the prompts or the frames that I offer in craft workshops and in therapeutic settings. So the prompts are the same, but the way that therapeutic writing is distinct from a craft workshop is its purpose. 
In therapy, if you, the writer, care, that's enough. Because the purpose is introspective. That's why in therapeutic writing groups, I don't ask participants to turn work in or even to read aloud, because the point isn't to compose the most lyrical, compelling sentence. Instead, after some silent periods of writing, we talk about what that experience of writing was like. What did you discover? What surprised you? What did you find challenging? What was more or less painful than you expected? Were there unanticipated joys that emerged? Any insights that you gleaned about your experience through writing about it this way? How did it help you process any issues that you're grappling with? And in these groups, the therapeutic benefit of this technique I see as twofold. The private experience of you alone with your words on the page and the communal experience of sharing and discussing around that activity. It's interesting, in my craft workshops, I try to create a safe space by saying that we're focusing on the work, not on the life. In other words, what everyone has access to critique is what's written on the page for others. In a therapeutic writing environment, the focus is more on the life, and that's also to make them feel safe because you don't have to be a writer or an aspiring writer to participate in that. So it's almost as though in a craft workshop, you're more creatively vulnerable, and in a therapeutic writing workshop, you're more personally vulnerable um, because the purposes are different. OK, this is part two of the writing exercise. Um, so take your five important things, and we're going to use them first in the therapeutic writing sense. So what I'd like you to do is look at your list and expand on one of the items that you have listed there. Uh, so writing about yourself, but around that particular item, that particular aspect of yourself. And using this approach, um, to expand on perhaps the item that you most need to investigate and process in your life uh, in a way that's meaningful to you is enough uh, in order to help yourself with self-definition, discovery, and reflection. And then we'll share a few, but again, without reading aloud, because it's not about the words on the page, but about the self-reflection, the discovery, the experience of what the writing offers you and obviously no requirement to share because it is personal. So pick one item, and I'll give you just a couple minutes to expand on that item. Write about yourself with that as your frame, that item. Okay. Go. Do we write aspects of one particular role of ours? Well, for instance, if one of your items is father, okay. so write about yourself as a father. So you're writing about yourself, but with that narrower focus on that one item, yeah? Okay, sure.
About one more minute. Well, that's a good signal for ending our writing period. No, it's perfect timing, actually. <laughs> um, so we're in a big room. There are a lot of strangers here. So obviously, only share if you feel comfortable. A couple people, we have time to share. And the focus is, again, we're not going to read aloud. We're not going to share the work. But the idea is you can feel free to tell us as much about the content that you examine through this frame as you like. And any discoveries, as I said before, uh, challenges, surprises, uh, insights that you gleaned from examining yourself through this particular frame. Would anyone like to share? Yes. I find it very, very insightful because um, I, the first thing I said what makes me interesting is I got this concept of the three persons in me that jumped out. Hmm. The first one is the teacher, the student, and the salesman. Okay. And traditionally in the American society, salesman is looked down upon. You think of a car salesman. For me, it's much more enabling. It's, it's a person who shows the value for your effort and money. And that jumped out to me. Mm -hmm. It's been something I've been struggling with. And Interesting. So a lot of the questions come around how being a student, a teacher, and a salesman completes me not only in a physical mm. and a mental sense, but in an intellectual and a spiritual sense. Yes. Does that make sense? Yes, that combination of those three. And so you learned that about your identity as a salesman through writing this exercise. You were able to sort of able to put, the three put together. it together. I always see the teacher and student. Mm. That's very, right. It's very easy to figure that. Yeah. Every good teacher is a good student, and every good student is a teacher, theoretically. Yeah, they're sort of two sides of the same coin. And then the salesman is related, but not as directly. Yeah, and so that combination, that's interesting. I mean, you may, thank you so much for sharing that. And you may find that even though I, in the interest of time, asked you to pick just one item, some of them are so linked that you really can't parse it out. And that's very interesting to see, well, how am I this combination of these items? You know, and what does that mean, actually? And I, I like your discovery about a salesman, you know, the different ways that can be seen by others as well and how it makes you feel about yourself. That's great. Thank you so much. Anyone else? Yes. 
I chose um, to, to uh, personal curiosity. Okay. And I discovered in the writing process that um, my curiosity, ever since a little girl, has led me to discover things in nature, to discover things about people, to discover things about places, institutions, things, mm -hmm. ideas, and all that. And it, it, it led me to you know the highest levels of power, to the greatest contours of the world, of mm -hmm. the world by curiosity. Mm -hmm. But it also, as much as it brought me all the good times, uh, it brought me to places, and I, I was thinking to curiosity killed a cat. But, uh, it nearly killed me <laughs> in some instances of my life where my curiosity got the better of me. Mm -hmm. But it didn't kill me. Mm -hmm. That's the thing. And the curiosity is that uh, it probably led me to have a greater trust in the, in the, in the stream of the arc of, the current of, the hum of life. Yeah, that's a really good that point. A, that was a really nice discovery. Mm. Oh, that's so great. Yeah, and, and it's so interesting because I, I asked you to list the items, not prioritizing them, and not judging them. I didn't say that explicitly, but it's not necessarily a positive aspect of you or a negative aspect of you. But it's interesting that you chose curiosity as a very important part of who you are and saw both sides of it, but based on your experiences, like you said, where curiosity led you in ways that were beneficial and maybe in ways, like you said, that were less beneficial. Um, but in fact, perhaps you learned from even those uh, more negative experiences, right? And I always say that what doesn't kill us, you know, becomes memoir material. So there's also that. <laughs> but that's great. Thank you. And I'm glad that you discovered that about yourself. Because um, sometimes you know full well, well, I know I'm a curious person, but delving a little deeper by having to write for four or five minutes about that aspect can open up some insights that you hadn't realized. Anyone else? Yes. Um, so I actually wrote down um, before you gave the assignment to start writing that I need to shut up my ego. Huh. And Yay. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I, mean, I, I don't have a big ego, but because I'm, one, I'm in college, I'm surrounded by wannabe writers all the time. And, you know, we're a pretentious bunch. We all think we're better than the other when that's not necessarily true. So I wrote, you know, my, my piece was kind of about shutting up my ego and learning to listen and learning to take advice and learning to kind of, you know, soak up as much as I can. Mm. Even when I do write stuff, like even in my journal, I have this like, like need or like want to just have someone else read it. And that's, you know, it's not bad or good, but it's not necessarily, you know, like no one needs to read it because like you said, you know, it's like, what if factor? It's like, why do people think it's important? Or why do people, you know, want to read what I have to say? And I think that kind of goes back to shutting out my ego. Mm. That, you know, not everyone wants to hear what I have to say. Not everyone wants to read my story. And, you know, it's what I have to learn. And, I'm young, so I still have a while to grasp the idea, but well, that sounds very emotionally mature to me, actually. And what's interesting about the phrase shutting up my ego is I understand the impulse to want someone else to read it. I mean, I'm going to date myself now, but it makes me think of Madonna's documentary, Truth or Dare. And 
you know, Warren Beatty sort of chides her and says, well, why do anything if it's not on camera? You know, in other words, like, why do anything? It's like if a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it, does it make a sound? It's, it's kind of the same idea, like, well, why write anything if I'm not going to show it to someone else? But... On the other hand, it's sort of taking care of your ego to write only for yourself, and there's something very freeing about it, because, and this is strange for a writing teacher to say, but like I'm putting on my therapist hat now, where it's not about your audience, or it's about you as your own audience, and that's all, and that's enough. And so to be able to write in a way where you're not thinking of, is this good enough, or who is my reader, those are all very important things in craft, but it kind of gets in your way if you're just trying to self-reflect and explore within, if that makes sense. So I think you point out a very crucial distinction. Yeah, it's very interesting. Thank you very much. One more person? Yes. I was thinking about how I made the transition from being an incompetent, aspiring novelist to being, if I say so myself, a darn good novelist with a couple of critically acclaimed books out there now, and I realized that my early attempts at writing novels failed because I had no real ideas to communicate, no larger point mm. that I was trying to make, mm -hmm. and the people that I was writing about were uninteresting because they had nothing to say, really, except what they did, and as you pointed out, just because it happened doesn't mean it's interesting. Right. So... When I realized that my the purpose of my novels was to teach and entertain and inspire a little controversy, that's when I started getting good. Mm -hmm. And so, since we were doing this from a therapeutic standpoint, did you have an item that you dilated on about yourself, just writing for you, for this exercise that we just did? That was difficult because I never write for myself, really. Yeah. So it's kind of what we were just talking about here, yeah, where there's right, always right. this awareness so of the other. Right, right. So, and that's it, it is it is strange to alleviate yourself of that of that burden of the other's eye, which, as I say, is crucial in craft, but could get in your way if you're just trying to reflect therapeutically. So that's where the distinction lies. That's exactly where it is. Thank you so much, and we'll have another opportunity to write and to share uh, in a little bit. Um, so the question comes up a lot, when are you ready to write about a personal experience? You know, because you're drawing from your, your own life and you're the protagonist as well as the storyteller. You're the main character. And um, you're not immediately ready necessarily to tell your story to the world. Um, and so I was trying to find an answer to this question that does come up so much because there's not one blanket answer that you need to wait five years after something powerful happens in your life. I mean, not necessarily. You could wait 50 years. You could write it the next day. You may be ready. Um, but my uh, friend and fellow memoirist and fellow uh, festival teacher, Hope Edelman, once said that you're ready when you're approaching at least an understanding of what the experience means. What is the meaning of that experience. Um, so it requires some processing and it requires some distance. Um, back to Neil Genslinger, um, he says that an ordeal served up without perspective or perceptiveness is merely an ordeal. And uh, playwright Edward Albee puts it this way, he says, 
Rage is incoherent. Observed rage can be coherent. Um, so if you're still too close to your experience, if you're still processing it emotionally, that may be very useful personally, but you may not be ready yet to tell it to others. And that uh, premature telling out to the world can lead to some less effective motivations to write memoir. Uh, for instance, to settle scores and exact revenge. Not the best motivation to write a memoir, but we know they're out there. Uh, to preach or to rant. I always say that preaching and ranting is not storytelling. Um, to confess or unload, to unburden yourself. Um, to generate sympathy. These are not the best motivations to write memoir for other people to read. These are not motivations that are going to make the other person care about your story. Uh, back to Neil Genslinger. Um, he says, as an example, say you get stuck under a rock and you have to cut off your own arm to escape. If as you're using your remaining hand to write a memoir about the experience, <laughs> your only purpose in doing so is to make readers feel the blade and scream in pain, you should stop. <laughs> You're a sadist, not a memoirist. You merely want to make readers suffer as you suffered, not entertain or enlighten them. So to entertain and enlighten, that is to tell a good story, which I think should be the motivation of writing in any genre, is probably the best reason to write a memoir for other people to read. To make your unique experience into something universal, uh, and thereby to offer a shared discovery to your reader. You're discovering and you're helping them to discover something as well. You're having a relationship with your reader. So it is about getting over yourself. It's not all about you. It's about your relationship with your reader. And on the flip side, the point of therapeutic writing then is to enlighten ourselves to the meaning of our experiences. And that's ultimately a deeply personal process. And writing in this personal way can help us there. And the process may not immediately and may not ever lead to writing to others. There's also the question of what memoir is and is not. Um, and that's relevant to this talk, too, in terms of the role of a journal in this writing for self versus writing for others. Um, the author, Danny Shapiro, uh, who writes fiction as well as memoir, and she most recently wrote a book about her writing life called Still Writing, and is the author of the memoirs Slow Motion and Devotion, wrote an open letter on Salon in 2014 entitled Dear Disillusioned Reader Who Contacted Me on Facebook. Uh, and unfortunately, we don't have access to the message that this reader sent to her on Facebook, but we get a gist of what the reader said based on Danny Shapiro's response. It seemed that the reader was hankering for Danny Shapiro's unabridged, exhaustive account of her life. In other words, the whole lump of clay, the block of stone, the unpruned hedge, the journal, 
the reader wanted all of this. And Dana Shapiro has a very funny paragraph describing her closet full of journals and how it would put the reader to sleep. And it's really for no one's eyes but her own. And she says in her open letter, when a writer sits down to write memoir, in other words, for other people, she is not sharing her diary. She is not confessing. She is not doing some sort of public striptease. Her whole entire life is not up for grabs. And this leads me to the idea that I convey to my students a lot, that we all have many memoirs in us. So what is this particular memoir about? Um, you know, if the answer is me or my life, that's probably way too broad. You know, you need to narrow, again, finding the statue, finding the topiary in the hedge, whatever your metaphor. So she also says, for yet another metaphor, uh, the memoirist looks through a single window in a house full of windows. After all, we can't look out of all the windows at once, can we? We choose a view. We pick a story to tell. We shift through the ever-changing sands of memory, and in doing so, create something hopefully beautiful, by which I mean universal. So I think that really helps us uh, narrow and focus when we're trying to determine what is interesting to other people. Um, so to that mind, I have another uh, writing exercise off of the five important things. And this is with the other approach, the craft approach, writing for others. The other one was writing for yourself more therapeutically. And I didn't ask you to read aloud. I asked you to talk about what you discovered about yourself, what the experience of writing about that aspect of yourself was like. So this is using that list of five things. You can choose the same item as you did last time and examine it in this different way. Or you could choose a different item. I'll leave that up to you. But this time, think of it as writing for others. Um, in other words, what might be interesting to other people and how might I convey that in an interesting way? The idea in terms of this narrowing of focus that Danny Shapiro uh, talked about looking out one window, you can't look out all the windows at once. Um, this one item perhaps could be that inciting incident or that organizing principle or that heat-seeking moment that can drive a memoir that's meaningful to others, that makes others care. Um, so pick an item that you think perhaps might be most compelling to other people. And also, as I say, write about it with that in mind, with an audience in mind, whoever that audience is. You know, those of us in this room, for example. Okay, so I'll give you a couple minutes. Pick an item, or as we said, sometimes they're so connected, it's a combination of items, that's okay. I'll give you a couple minutes, and then we'll share a few of those. And we will read aloud, and we won't talk about our life, because it's about the work now not about the life. What do you do with the life to create the work for other people?
Got one more minute. Okay. Would anyone like to share? So again, we're reading aloud. We're not talking about it. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for standing up so everyone can hear. Um, I, the word I put down was British. Okay, that's good. That is a good idea to tell us your item. Great. Thank you. Um, I was born in Britain and immigrated to this country when I was 23. I came from a society where the word foreign was pronounced from the wrinkled nose, a sense of disgust, and a sense of disgust, to a land where everyone's family had come from somewhere else. In England, your destiny was forged by your class and family background. In America, my destiny unfolded ahead of me like the flower, like flower petals opening in the sunlight. That's lovely. Thank you so much. Any thoughts about that? And again, it's about the work, not about the life. Anything else? Okay. Thank you so much. Who else would like to read their piece? Sally. Do you mind standing just so everyone can hear? Because I won't be able to repeat. Thank you. When my daughter was tiny, driving next to me in the car, she would say, Mommy, don't sing. I'm, I'm, I am not even aware of it when I do it, but if I stop and listen for a moment to try to unearth the lyric that goes with the melody I'm humming, it's a direct link to the emotion that's dominant in my life, or to the puzzle I'm trying to solve, or to the truth I'm trying not to know. Finally, after all these years of apologizing for it, I realized I'm grateful for it. Mm. What's interesting, too, you know, we talk about the unique and the universal in memoir. In other words, we're writing about our particular experience, as I said. But ideally, if you want others to care, um, the point, uh, what this is about, uh, transcends those particulars and becomes something more universal and relatable. So just as an example, you know, feeling foreign or, you know, singing as Sally's particular example, it doesn't have to be singing to, to have that sense, what she conveyed about herself uh, could be translatable to someone else's, a reader's particular experience. So that, that's part of what we do when we write for other people. Great, thank you. Someone else? Yeah, John. <clears throat> At 45, I decided to stop looking for and fretting about finding love 
My life was good personally and professionally. I was okay. When I stopped looking and fretting, it found me moral. Loving should not be such hard work. It is better to have not loved at all than to have loved badly or unequally. <laughs> <laughs> well, that definitely plays out well. <laughs> I didn't think it was funny. <laughs> Well, I love when we have sort of trite advice that a writer turns on its head. You know, that's very refreshing, and maybe that's what makes people laugh. And I also think in terms of making something unique, universal, that um, people read for selfish reasons, you know? So if you're giving them some life advice, a moral of the story that they can take away from your writing, that's going to make them care, you know? You're not preaching and telling them what to do because it comes directly from your personal experience. So you're not acting as though you know everything, but you're saying, well, based on what I've experienced, here, here's my conclusion. And so that might be useful to a reader, right? Um, great, thank you. Anybody else? Uh, yes, here. So the trade I'm writing about is my intelligence. I have always enjoyed linking thoughts to create. Only connect has been my motto throughout life, and I've used that principle to understand others as well as myself. I became a psychoanalyst for that reason. Listening to people, connecting their experiences, all of it allowed me to connect to myself in ways I needed to grow. Now that I have retired, I'm writing poetry as yet another connection between the world and me. That's lovely. I mean, it's beautifully written. I'm not surprised that you're working on poetry, so the language itself. And then also, again, that idea of connectivity, you know, whatever your particular context is a, is a pretty relatable concept, you know? So even if we're not a retired psychoanalyst who's writing poetry, there's a lot there that we can relate to. Uh, one more? You had your hand up? Yes. Oh, okay. We'll do two more. That's okay. <laughs> hey, I'm a father, mentor, coach, investigator, which means I fix things, whether they want to be fixed or not. <laughs> That's one of the dilemmas that I have to find out. I have to reflect both the guides I had, the parents, the guides, mentors I had, and the ones I wished I had, uh, to guide without controlling, to change what I can, mourn what I can't, and not to be blind to reality, while at the same time not giving up hope. And that's been the biggest challenge, I think, for myself, when you're trying to fix the unfixable and knowing when to mm -hmm. stop and when to mourn and move on. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you. That, that felt like um, there was a lot of good self-exploration in there, too. It sounded like you were learning within as well, yeah. and uh, sort of similar to John's, you know, sharing the life lessons you learned through this this experience and that idea of being a fixer whatever your particular roles are you know a problem solver and like you said whether they want to be fixed or not i think that's something that other readers can care about and and one more when you stood up at the glasses yes no no worries please um, <laughs> on the documentary jane filmed of source the writing group i was in for 10 years i said every time a woman picks up a pen I feel stronger. This was well over 20 years ago. It's still true, the phrase reverberates, but now, from this decade's view, I want to claim it for myself. Every time I pick up a pen and work until I complete a piece, I am stronger. 
and perhaps somewhere a reader will be as well. Time is condensed now. I feel its finite weight. I stand on a road with the end in sight, still distant, I hope, but in sight. I want that strength now to guide my own stories, to shape my own words. I claim it to myself. Well, that's great, and I feel like that's almost a social commentary as well as being about your own particular experience, you know, just that idea of a woman picking up a pen is stronger. Um, and yet you're not speaking broadly. Again, I think what, it seems counterintuitive, but the unique and universal, again, I think if we try to generalize and paint broad strokes, it's less relatable and less compelling. But if we can make larger points, but springing from our particular narrow experience, that's really the most relatable um, and interesting to others and makes others care. So that's very interesting. Thank you. Um, thank you, everyone, for participating in those. Um, just to wrap up, and then we can take some questions. Um, so therapeutic writing, um, whether we're alone with our journals, or using more structured prompts and group discussions aids us in delving deeper and simultaneously achieving reflective distance uh, in order to gain clarity and understand the meaning of our experiences. This can sometimes be an on-ramp to approaching readiness to tell our stories to others who will care because they relate to something universal in our uniqueness but other times, therapeutic writing can be a means to its own end. That is, the personal clarity and meaning that we discover for ourselves is enough in itself. Um, I'll end again with Danny Shapiro, because I think that this quote applies to both writing for others and writing for ourselves. She says, as a writer, my inner life is my only instrument I understand the world only by my attempts to shape my experience on the page. Then and only then do I know what I think, feel, believe. Thank you. Uh, we have a couple minutes if anyone has questions or comments. Yes. It was like when you gave us permission to not have to show it to anybody. Right. Right. So I'm loving it, and I wanted to write down those prompts that you listed earlier on. It sounded like you had two of them. Yeah, these were just a couple examples. I, had, I have a, a lot, and I keep developing more as I work in both capacities. Sorry? Most of these prompts anywhere? Is there somewhere we can? Well, I can uh, I can describe certainly the ones that I mentioned, um, and we could think about that. That's a good point. Um, well, one is, for example, and this is the assignment I gave my group last night, which is to write about an experience, two versions, um, and either give yourself a word count limit or a time limit, just so that you spend the same amount of time or space on each version. You know, when I'm doing a group. Uh, I do it by time, you know, say 20 minutes. And like last night, I gave them a very short word count. Um, so write about an experience first in the past tense. So in other words, you're here in Iowa City in 2015 remembering this, 
you know, it could have been yesterday, it could have been when you were five, but it's in the past. Um, so you have that distance of reflection, you're remembering it. And you have the two layers of what you're thinking and feeling now and what you thought and felt then. And then, if possible, take some space in between, because the idea is to write the second version fresh. So a couple days, you know, if you're just doing it for yourself, take some time in between. Then write about the same experience again in the present tense. And it's very important not to look at your first version when you're writing the second version, because, again, you're not going to learn much, whether on a craft level or personally, if it's simply the exact same piece with the verb tenses changed. That's not very interesting. The whole point is, if you're back in the moment, I am eight years old, and my dog just died. Now, I'm not in Iowa City in 2015. Uh, how does that change your perspective on the experience? You don't have the distance and the reflection. You're trapped in the immediate moment. Um, and also, do you recall uh, details more vividly? I have found that sometimes if I want to really delve into a past experience, I write it in the present tense to conjure up. It's strange. There's all this stuff stored in our brain, and it really uh, teases it out. Um, dialogue, uh, sensory details, uh, emotional details. It may have a very different emotional feel. The narrative voice may be very different, especially if you're writing from a perspective of being much younger. Um, and the other thing that I found interesting in my therapeutic writing groups is uh, sometimes the time frame is different because often in the present tense, you go narrower and deeper. So you may not get as far in the plot, so to speak. And that's fine and interesting, you know, because you're really d delving deeper. So, you, so you, you don't get to three days later like you did in the past where you move more quickly. Um, so that's one of them. Another one is... Um, writing about a, an incident or a scene or a moment for which you know there are multiple perspectives. So first write it from yours, because that's the easy one, and then write it from someone else's, but also in the first person, so that you can really try to get in that person's head and heart um, as a means toward empathy and also toward uh, understanding the moment in a more 360-degree way. Um, and also to allow for the space for multiple truths with a lowercase t, you know, uh, which is not the same as fabricating, but just that memoir is inherently subjective. So, And therapeutically, that's very helpful to try to understand someone else's perspective, especially if you're in conflict with that person. Um, so that's another one. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm happy to, you know, talk individually or, you know, give you some other prompts, um, but they're, they're a whole bunch. And again, they're frames, so you decide what content to examine through them. Whether you're writing for yourself or for other people, it can be very fruitful. You can discover a lot. So, yes? No, maybe I should write that book. <laughs> I'm, I, you know, I'm not the first person to come up with this, obviously. You know, I mean, I'm doing it in my particular way based on my varied interests and experience. Um, but certainly, if, if you look online, um, uh, James Pennebaker does a version of this. I mean, he's, he's pretty well known for doing this kind of thing. It's, it's di different in the execution, but it's sort of a similar philosophy. So he might be one place to go, and I, I'm pretty positive he's written a book about it. Um, he's certainly written about the technique. Sorry? 
But James Pennebaker has several books on this. Yeah, so that's one place to start. And I know there are other people, but he, he's probably the most prominent practitioner of this kind of thing, working things out on the page. Yes? Where would you put Julia Cameron's work in the notion of therapeutic writing? I know it became, you know, it just like um, I'm not sure. The artist wing. Yeah, yeah, she knows that, that kind of, yeah. I'm not sure either, that's right. I don't know. I, I have to think about that. I don't have a ready answer to that. Um, I haven't thought about the comparison between that technique and this. That's an interesting question. Yeah, yeah. Um, as a fellow therapist, I'm curious how you integrate either your own professional writing or personal journal writing into your life and sort of day to day, you know, Monday through Sunday, In my therapeutic work or? No, um, for yourself. I oh. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, that's really a time management question more than anything else. But it's um, yeah. At the moment, I'm helping other people, whether in the therapy setting or or with their writing, more than I'm creating my own, to be completely honest. And it is a time management issue and sort of a brain space issue. But, you know, journal writing for sure, you know, sporadically when it when it feels useful to work something out. And uh, writing whether... I actually wrote an article about therapeutic writing and... Um, and in terms of using my own writing in a therapeutic setting, um, I have self-disclosed uh, using a chapter from my memoir because it's an example of one of the prompts I give. And I do it at a point where it feels appropriate, um, but uh, it, it, it shows what I mean. It's, it's another prompt called Creative License where you write about something that, ha that really happened, but you can't remember either... E Either you can't remember it or you weren't present yourself. So you're writing about it based on secondhand information. And I have a chapter in my book about being in the womb and being born, which obviously happened, but which I obviously can't remember. But I'm writing about it, you know, first person, present tense, as if I'm fully cognizant of what's going on. So I use that as an example for them so they can see what I'm talking about. Um, and it's factually based, but of course I'm taking a leap but it doesn't um, it doesn't uh, violate my contract with the reader because obviously the reader knows I can't remember it. So it's not like I'm pulling one over on anybody, you know. So that's another example of a prompt I use. Yeah, one more question. I have been struggling with approving. Yeah. And trying to find a focus. I've been journaling this traumatic experience and stream of thought, stream of consciousness for a long time. And now I'm trying to focus it in so that I can find a, a, a hanger, as it were, yeah. to put this story on. Do you have some advice for that? Well, that's, that's a great question. That's sort of uh, what these prompts address, where you feel... You know, it's it's related to what I said about when are you ready to write about your experience for other people. Um, and I think the narrowing is the key, you know, to really try to find aspects of the whole experience. I mean, first of all, to feel the readiness, the emotional readiness to tell the story out loud to others. Um, and is that journal writing getting you ready for that? And then the second is to find the narrowness within the story. And one good way to do that, um, as you know from 
the assignment I gave you for today is I ask my students to title all their pieces, even if they're one page, because I really think that being forced to boil it down to a word or a phrase makes you think, well, what is this about? You know, what is the point? It helps you focus. Um, and so that can really help. Or even just coming up with one sentence that describes, as I keep referring to this organizing principle, you know, or the inciting incident. Well, what is my memoir about? What's a one sentence description? One sentence. That's it. And if you have trouble coming up, boiling it down to just one sentence, that's okay, but then that indicates where you are in that process. And maybe you need to do some more writing in your journal or working on these prompts just for yourself to help understand the experience better, and I think that helps you get the distance and control you need to, to pick and choose and prune, you know, in order to present the, the topiary to your reader, <laughs> rather than the exhaustive, uh, unruly hedge, right? Okay. I think we're out of time, but thank you so much, everybody. I appreciate it. Thank you.